As Dave said, my name is Gareth Irwin. Um, I'm part of the preaching team, which basically means there's a few of us amateurs who try and every now and again try and explain a bit of the Bible. And you're very gracious with us and um, hopefully help us and guide us as we all try and struggle with some of these passages together. The disclaimer is if you want to hear either Christoph or David, the professionals, you should come back another week, okay? So... If you're visiting as well, um, you may or may not be aware that we are in the middle of a long series um, through the book of Jeremiah. And to give a bit of sort of what we've learned so far, we just want to remind ourselves what's been going along. If you're anything like me, you can barely remember what's happened last week. Um, And then thinking about a series that we started since way before Christmas, it just takes a bit of time to, to remind us where we're at. We've learned a lot about God's people, the people of Israel. At this stage in their history, Jeremiah has told them that they will go into exile, that they'll be taken over by a foreign power and sent away from the land that has been promised to them, originally to Abraham and then reflected through all the generations after Abraham. And initially when we looked at that, we wondered as how this situation of God's people in exile has a similarity with our own situation as we live as God's people in an environment that is becoming more and more hostile to Christian values and the Christian way of life. In that context, we also learned a lot about Jeremiah. We learned that he'd been chosen by God, he'd been given a difficult message, and yet through all of this, he remained faithful because God had chosen him and set him apart for this specific task. We also though, have learned a lot about God. We've learned that it's, we have a God who is holy, a God who's loving, but also a God who acts as a judge in these situations. And through all of this, the big question that we have to answer and that the people of Israel are asking is, where is the hope? And for all of us, as we look at how this applies to us in a situation as we wander through this land, as people, God's people in exile, the question that we have to ask is, where is the hope? Where's the hope that's going to get us through this week and the rest of our lives? And so we come to Jeremiah 30, um, chapters 30 to 33. Historians have suggested that these chapters were written at the very point that the Babylonians were outside the walls of Jerusalem. The moment when the people of Israel's very faith in God and that covenant that had been established with Abraham and the generations of Israelites since, um, they were, this is the book that was supposed to meet their need and sort of encourage and strengthen them. And so in chapter 30, chapter 30 opens with these words, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. In the lowest point, in this lowest point in the history of the people of Israel, God speaks. He makes this big, bold promise, you will be restored to the land. And so in the next few chapters, we have the most upbeat part of the book of Jeremiah. For some of you who've been here over the preceding weeks, you'll know that that's not a big claim because a lot of Jeremiah is not very upbeat. So when we say it's upbeat, it's, it's all in, in relative. We're, we're speaking about how relative in comparison. But in this book, Jeremiah obeys the command of God and writes what has been called the book of consolation, the book of hope, the book that is going to sustain the people of Israel through their exile. And do you know the important thing is that it actually worked? 
In Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, God's people are sitting in this situation of, of exile, and we read this in Daniel 9, verse 2. Daniel understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Do you see what was happening? God's word given to Jeremiah and written down was the very word that God was able to use um, years later to actually inspire and challenge Daniel to do amazing things, inspire him to start praying and petitioning God because it made him act. God's word for God's people had the power to transform. And so I suppose the challenge, just as we're warming up this evening, is what about us as God's people living in this exile that we talked about way at the start of the book of Jeremiah? How are we handling God's word? Do we allow it to impact, shape, and mold our lives? If you're anything like me, my New Year's resolutions don't change from year to year. Basically, for about the last 10 or 20 years, it's been A, to keep my room tidier, and B, to read the Bible more, okay? And some of those I'm doing slightly better on each year, slowly and slowly. But it's this challenge, isn't it, as, as Christians to try and immerse ourselves with God's Word, because this is the stuff that's going to inspire and challenge us as we try and live our daily lives. The Quran describes Christians as people of the book. It's quite a complex term, but just essentially if we take it at its most straightforward Are we as God's people still so committed to God's word that actually outsiders look at us and would be able to describe us as people of the book? I wonder how we would measure up just to that simple question of how we handle God's word. And so chapter 30 then continues and we see how the restoration of God's people will work out. At first, it's not a great book of hope because actually in chapter 7, or sorry, verse 7 of chapter 30, God tells Jeremiah, how awful will the day be? The people of Israel will have to deal with the consequences of their disobedience and exile. God's people were in a situation where they were hostage and captive. And in order to get them back, they weren't going to be just teleported back to the land. They would have to suffer and endure things as God gradually then allowed them to return to Jerusalem. Liberation was going to be costly, but yet there was a balance to what was going on. In verse 8, God tells the people, I will break the yoke off their necks. You will be freed from those who are oppressing you. In verse 11, he says, I am with you and I will save you. I will discipline you but only in due measure. Do you see the balance of a God who's going to restore these people, but also a God who sees that there is the judgment and there are the consequences of the sin and disobedience that God's people have, happened, have done. But yet, in the midst of this hope for restoration, there's a realization that while God's people are going to be geographically restored to the land that God has promised, there's still a major problem. Verse 12 God, speaking to Israel, says to Israel that your wound is incurable, your injury is beyond healing. There's this problem that the people of Israel have had for generations and generations. There's this problem with the relationship with God, that no matter how hard they try, there's still this this thing that needs to be sorted out. But yet in the midst of this, this book of hope, we see that there's a hint of something better. Because in verse 17, God says, I will restore you to health. The people named saved, 
but as much not just from the other people that are around about, but also from themselves. And then we get into a run in the text where Jeremiah starts to talk about what it will look like whenever this, this restoration takes place. Verse 18, he says, I'll restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt and the palace will stand in its proper place. Literally, the ruins will be restored and the buildings will look the way they're supposed to be. In verse 19, there'll be songs of thanksgiving, sounds of rejoicing. I'll bring them honor. And then in verse 20, the big promise is that there'll be complete restoration as of old. Their children will be as in days of old. And importantly, in the context of a vassal state where they've had a puppet ruler installed by whoever's in charge of them, verse 21 says that their leader will be one of their own. There is going to be this amazing restoration that will happen. God's people restored to their land and living the way that God had intended them. Verse 23, there's a, or 22, there's this great soaring phrase again. He says that there'll be the restoration in every, of everything. You will be my people and I will be your God. The covenant will be fulfilled. This letter where the Ten Commandments is in the context of a covenant relationship, a love letter between God and his people, where he guides them as to how they should live. This is going to be fulfilled. Chapter 30 closes with a great verse that should drive us on to find out what else Jeremiah is going to say. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand this. And so we're driven from chapter 30 into the rest of of what Jeremiah says in, in this part of this book of Consolation. There's suddenly a tone change in chapter 31. Yes, there are still the prophecies about the return of God's people to their land, but there's a noticeable increase in the breadth of their impact and the exuberance of their joy. Chapter 31, verse 3, gives us this amazing picture of God in verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with an unfailing kindness. It's worth a pause Did you hear that? I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. That's what God was saying to his people at that time when they were just about to go into exile. But also that's what God says to us as we wander into a church in the suburbs of Belfast. God is coming tonight and saying to you that he has loved you with an everlasting love. And he is drawing you with unfailing kindness. Jeremiah goes on to describe what the restoration will look like. In verse 8, it suddenly goes beyond just the idea that the northern and southern kingdoms would be restored. It says the people will be gathered from the ends of the earth. Suddenly this is something that becomes global in its impact. And in this series of verses, he said that they'll walk beside streams of water. They'll walk on a level path. They'll be shepherded by God. There'll be shouts of joy on Zion. They'll rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. They will be well watered, the lands, they will sorrow no more. Young women will dance and be glad, and there will be comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Do you see it? Jeremiah isn't just getting carried away with soaring rhetoric, but the promises are becoming so great and so vibrant that the actual restoration of Israel that occurs 70 years after this falls a bit flat and doesn't live up to this global revolution, envisaged by these and other passages throughout the Old Testament prophets. It says, he says that the end 
of uh, chapter 30. In days to come, you'll understand this. There's more. In verse 17, there's a, there is hope. God tells the people of Israel that there is hope. And then suddenly in verse 22, Jeremiah says, the Lord will create a new thing on earth. That's the warm-up to the, the big passage just at the end of, in, in verse 31. When Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Do you see it? God is going to create something new. These are some of the most climactic verses in the whole sweep of the loving purposes of God. This is the turning point or the signpost that God is going to act afresh. And can we see and understand exactly what he means in these next few verses? I want you to see, first of all, that there's the need. In verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It'll not be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah spells out the problem with the old covenant. God had redeemed his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and made this covenant with them, a covenant in which their side wasn't just purely to be keep the letter of the law, but it was actually to keep this faithfulness and this loving relationship with God. And from that, a covenant, the covenant relationship that they weren't actually able to keep. The problem with the old covenant was that Israel couldn't keep it. These laws that were written on stone and that Moses brought down from the mountainside, we know from our Bibles that Israel were already disobeying it before Moses had even made it down to the, the bottom of the mountain. These laws written with the Ten Commandments written in stone, the Israelites fell short consistently. This was going to be, this new covenant is going to get rid of that. There was a need, there was the problem with God's people. There's a few things that are probably worth a quick comment here. Note how the old covenant is described. The idea was that God was the husband of Israel. It was a marriage covenant. It was a loving relationship between God and his people. It wasn't a God standing on a mountaintop saying that you must, come, must obey these things. It was a re- loving relationship between his people and himself. Also, it, this idea of a new covenant wasn't some hastily convened plan B where God in his trinity was sort of going, we've tried plan A, it hasn't worked. Suddenly we'll have to think, how can we get all this sorted out? Galatians 3 verse 24 describes the law as the schoolmaster or the guardian that brings us to Christ. For us, as we're looking at the law, it wasn't that God suddenly had to act to sort out the relationship with his people. The law was there to drive us and show us that God was coming to send his son in Jesus. And why was that? Galatians 3 tells us that we might be justified by through faith. I want you to see what the new covenant is going to be like as well. It's getting rid of the old covenant, but suddenly he tells it this, that in verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Woe. Do you get the contrast of what has just happened? God's people of of Israel are used with the idea that God's law is etched in stone and sitting in the Ark of the Covenant. 
And suddenly God is saying that no longer will it be this kind of thing that you can visit this physical thing, but actually God is going to indwell his people and write his law and what he wants on their hearts and minds. This is absolutely revolutionary in the understanding of Israel and their relationship with God. The point is that God's Spirit is going to conduct transforming heart surgery on us. God is going to realize that we were incapable of keeping our side of the marriage covenant and come inside us and transform us so that we're able to do this. This is a forgiveness that makes us less likely to re-offend. This is absolutely revolutionary. And do you understand just how amazing this is in the sweep of redemptive history? From the Old Testament, we often hold this idea that the Garden of Eden was perfection because God and Adam and Eve were able to walk around with each other in the cool of the day and converse. This new covenant is even better than that because actually what it is is God is able to dwell within us through his spirit and write this law and write, write this law in our minds and write it on our hearts. Do you understand how mind-blowing this intimacy is that we can have with the creator of the universe? This is grace in action. I will be their God and they will be my people. It fleshes out the phrase that is used elsewhere countless times in the Old Testament by the prophets. Do you understand that? That you can have this indwelling with God. The same God who later on is described as the one who appoints the sun, decrees the moon and the stars, and stirs up the seas. You are his and he is your God. That's got to transform how we walk out of this building and how we walk into our work or wherever God has placed us in the week that lies ahead. The God who's in control of the universe has this intimate relationship potential with each one of us. Do you see also other things about this new covenant? There's some amazing things as well. There's the universality of it. Okay, in verse 34 we read, No longer will they teach their neighbor so to say, or, or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Do you see how this new covenant is? It's no longer just for God's chosen people in Israel, but it's for absolutely everyone. There's this potential that anyone... Um, can, they will all know their need of a relationship with God and the way to have it. Can you also see the equality of this relationship with God? It will be for the least to the greatest. This is so revolutionary and transforming compared to all the religions that were running around the Near East at the time, but also it's transforming for a religion that we talk about today. This is, makes Christianity stand out from everything else because God is able to indwell us and the universality and the equality that we see there. How does all this happen? At the end of verse 34, there's the for or the because, depending on what version you read, it says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. How does this new covenant come about? Is because God has to act to sort out the problem that humanity has with keeping the covenant that he wants. God has to come in and, and, and deal with this situation. The question, of course, when we're reading through Jeremiah is how does this come about? And there are a couple of hints in Jeremiah, but it's interesting, I think this is one of these things where Jeremiah gets to explain a bit of it, but he doesn't see how God is actually going to fulfill it. 
David, in the reading that we were doing this evening, started um, in verse 15, where there's this very sort of complicated, at first glance, complicated phrase about Rachel weeping and these voices in Ramah. That's quite an interesting story if we look back, because what that refers to is whenever Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, and as part of, during the course of her giving birth, she becomes very unwell and actually dies in childbirth. And so this was a seminal moment in the life of God's people, and it was one of those real sort of cultural events that God's people would have known and understood about and have seen the reference. But the interesting thing for us is that there's also a further reference in Matthew's gospel to this. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, during the slaughter of the innocents under Herod, whenever Jesus becomes an exile and escapes into Egypt, we see this language of um, God's people weeping and not being able to be comforted. The interesting thing is that Matthew is saying that just with this reference to um, Benjamin being born and this reference to Rachel weeping in Jeremiah, Jesus comes and fulfills something of that. He goes further later on in the chapters of Matthew's gospel when he uses this language of Jesus as a mother hen and gathering the people round about him and then weeping for her children. There's this image of Jesus coming, looking over this situation and then being, being brought to tears. This happens in Jerusalem hours before Jesus dies to give those who trust in him new birth, literally by his death, to be bringing people to new life. In chapter 33, there's also another point where Jeremiah is trying to explain how all this is going to come out. In verse 15, he says, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, one who will be king and priest. This is something we know with Christmas still in our minds. We know that it was once in Royal David City that stood a lowly cattle shed. And we know and understand the context of Jesus as that person in the line of David going to Bethlehem, David's city, so that, um, so that or sorry, Joseph going um, to, to Bethlehem, David's city, so that Jesus could be born and fulfill this prophecy that he would be from David's line. And the New Testament fleshes that out. It explains that Jesus is going to be the king and the prophet. But more than those slightly obscure references in Jeremiah, Jesus himself in Matthew 26, in Mark 14, and in Luke 22, and summarized by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, stands up and uses the words that we use at every communion service. In verse 24, it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We are used to hearing that every time we celebrate communion, but to an Old Testament Jew, to have heard those words that Jesus spoke at the Passover meal just hours before he went to the cross, people would see the link with the New Covenant reference in Jeremiah. This was a reference that all Jews would be familiar with, and they were looking for this New Covenant to be fulfilled in something. How is this New Covenant achieved? It's through the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. As he stands and makes the link to this verse, 
He's saying, you know that moment of transformation that you've been looking for for hundreds of years about how the relationship between God and his people prophesied about by Jeremiah, it's now fulfilled in me as I go to the cross. Jesus is the mechanism by which God is able to forgive our sins. Verse 34, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This, this globality, this, the, the fact that it's open to everybody, it's a fact that it's a quality, the fact that is all of those is bound around the fact that it works through Jesus and Jesus' death on the cross. Folks, this is kind of mind-blowing, and it's heart-meltingly huge that every one of us should now be transformed by the idea that we can have this relationship with God. A God who lives inside us by his Holy Spirit. A God who calls his people. A God who is able to forgive their sins. This should change us tonight and transform how we walk into our lives tomorrow and in the days that lie ahead. But the danger with that is because it's so big that we can walk out and do nothing. Part of that, this transformation that Jeremiah is talking about and that's fulfilled in Jesus is so big that we could just try and ignore it and push it under the carpet. So I want to think about two things that will really impact how we change and we, we see our lives. I want to bring us back to the thing that Christoph was pointing out about the similarities between Jeremiah and God's people in exile. He noted how as we walk around in days when governments are changing laws and um, situations are such that Christian values and so on, it makes us in this world feel that we're not at home. The point is, the point of what this new covenant makes is that whenever we have this restored relationship is that this world isn't our home. So we've got to feel in exile. The same Jesus who brings about this new covenant in John's gospel spells this out even further. In John 14, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Why do we feel uneasy and like strangers in this land? Because we should. This world is not our home. Jesus' death and resurrection is the guarantee that one day he will bring us to be with him and come down to this world and restore it, create a new heaven and a new earth, perfection restored, and suddenly we'll feel at home. How does that change how we live? And what, what, should, that, what should that change how we, what we do in the weeks and days ahead? There are two things that I think Jeremiah hints at. The first thing is that it should inspire us to visit that home regularly through prayer. In chapter 33, Verse 3, Jeremiah says of God, God saying, The Lord says, Call to me and I will answer you, and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. 
Jeremiah fleshes out this new covenant, this relationship. The fact is that we're able to pray and wander into the very courts of heaven, and we can go into this home that God has promised us to be in. That's the thing that puts our lives into context. That's the thing that puts financial difficulties into context because we know that God has cancelled the greatest debt. That's the thing that puts health concerns into context because we know that God has dealt with our greatest sickness. That's the thing that puts our loneliness and feeling of isolation into context because God has brought us into a friendship and a fellowship with him. Why we need um, prayer is because it enables us to visit our home. It enables us to call to that God and he will answer. It enables us to learn these great and unsearchable things that we don't yet know. The thing that knowing that this world is not our home, it should drive us to prayer. It should allow us to encourage us to visit our home through prayer, to stabilize us in the situations that we face daily. But also realizing that this earth is not our home, it should inspire us to renovate our future home through actions as we try and see God's kingdom grow and extend in this place. We have a responsibility not just to wander out with this idea of this new covenant echoing in our ears and making us have a warm glow inside. We have a responsibility to transform this world that we see around us because actually this, these are the streets that are going to be restored ultimately when God returns. The challenge for us as well is for those of us who don't know Jesus, this new covenant points to something beyond the exile that God's people feel on this earth. What we realize, each one of us, is that this world isn't our home. We have a situation where we're in exile to this world, but also in an exile to God. We strive to fill it one of two ways. We can either strive to be as moral as we possibly can, or we try and fill it by living as hedonistic a lifestyle as possible. We know in either of those ways that this is not our home. The exile that we live in at the moment is an exile that we have created for ourselves as we fail to respond to a God who has drawn us with his unfailing kindness and his everlasting love. How about it? If you're a Christian, we've got this situation where we can see that God has created this home that we're heading towards and we can visit it through prayer and we want to build it in our lives as we face our daily responsibilities. But what about you who are wandering this world without the guide that God gives us. God is the guide who has shown us a way through so that we aren't always traveling and never arriving. We're not these exiles wandering in the wilderness. God is the person that can change this experience on this earth from being always winter and never Christmas. A God who ultimately wants to bring us home. This is the message ultimately that Jeremiah talks about. Yes, there was this hope for God's people as they were exiled from the land, they would be restored. But there is this hope that deals with the great problem that meant that God's people could be restored to, to him. This is the hope that should warm our hearts but inspire us to live amazing lives for him whenever we realize that God has acted to draw us to him and ultimately to draw us home. Folks, this is the message that we need to take into our very beings because this is the thing 
that the world needs to hear as we go and confront them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Heavenly Father, your word tonight shows us that there are real consequences of sin. Just as God's people couldn't be teleported back to the land, they had to deal with the suffering and the consequences of their sin. And Lord, also we see a covenant where we're convicted of our sin because there's this need, that regardless of how faithful you are, we are unfaithful. As the husband to God's people, they wandered away and were unfaithful. Heavenly Father, show us this new covenant. Show us the intimacy of a God who can dwell within us. Show us the universality of a God who welcomes all to him. Show us the equality and point us to a Jesus who is the perfect saviour, whose death and resurrection meant that our sins could be forgiven and this new covenant could occur. Heavenly Father, may this feed our souls so that we'd be transformed that we would see our home as the glory yet to come, and that that would drive us to pray and extend your kingdom here on this earth. And Lord, we pray that if some of us are just fine that this earth doesn't make sense, that we find that we're wandering around and looking for a guide or something that will point us to explain how this works. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us tonight. Show us that we are in exile because we're wandering through to a point to a God who wants us to bring wants to bring us home. Oh Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be open to what you want to say to us in our lives and how you want us to be transformed. We pray this in and through Jesus' name. Amen.